guys. Yeah, my name is Taylor Griffin, and uh, tonight I have the great privilege to talk to you about possibly one of the most potent and powerful pieces of scripture ever written. Whoa. Uh, but before we dive in tonight, let's pray. God, I thank you that you have spoken to us through your scriptures, that you sent your son Jesus to show the world exactly what you are like, and that you teach us about yourself and who we were made to be. We love you, Father. Please speak through me tonight. Amen. So we covered a lot of ground this quarter going through Romans. Um, we learned about the harsh reality uh, in which we live as human beings, that we're drowning in our sin, and but that God will save us if we allow him to. Um, we've talked about the reality of our deserved punishment because of sin, but also how faith in Jesus is what allows us to repent. And we've learned that out of our love for God, we should live hedonistic Christian lives, lives where we feast on the pleasures of God and allow it to fuel us. And I really enjoyed last week's message from Jessica. Um, of the way she depicted the two wars waging inside of us. Uh, the war of our lives before and after Jesus, and the war of living in Christ uh, versus living in sin. So let's actually, let's get the Bible passages. Um, go ahead and uh, ask them out and just raise up your hand if you need one. We can be reading a little bit. And uh, all of this that, that we've uh, been, been going over in Kyle will be this chapter 8, you know, which we're going to talk about tonight. And this is the chapter where Paul brilliantly articulates the gospel. Um, this is where Paul makes some of the most Old claims about the redemptive nature of God's plan. His plan to adopt his creation and make them his children and change the world. So chapter 8 opens up with Paul making perhaps one of the most triumphant and important statements in all of Christianity. But before we jump into the scripture, I want to tell you guys a little bit about myself. Specifically about what I was like when I was a lot younger. Uh, when I was young, I was known for throwing temper tantrums. I know you're probably like, what? <laughs> but yeah, uh, and I, you're also probably thinking, well, yeah, sure, like every kid you know, throws temper tantrums. Um, that's like what they're known for. But I had a little more serious of a problem. I was throwing temper tantrums, and I was probably like eight years old, and my parents were concerned. Uh, you see, the problem wasn't just that I would scream my head off every once in a while when I didn't get my way. I had this really weird idea in my head that I was actually smarter than everyone else around me. And I, I applied to my friends, and my friends' sisters, and even my parents. Um, I know, you know, it's like a lot of kids, a lot of parents, or a lot of kids think their parents know everything. Uh, but not me. Apparently, I was not that good. And um, more than that, I at times thought my parents were down in the um, so I kind of had a little bit of an attitude problem. Um, pretty young, and, you know, I'm like, oh, I'm only eight. I'm not even in middle school yet. So my parents, thank the Lord, uh, made it very clear to me that whenever I blew up at them, I was going to be sent to my room uh, and not be able to do anything. And looking back, this doesn't really seem like that harsh of a punishment. Uh, however, at the time, at the time that I had to spend in my room, give my brain ample time to think about what I just said to my parents. I also love dearly. Uh, 
that time I spent thinking about my words, uh, it really made me feel like a deep regret. It's like I felt sick, you know. Like, did anyone remember that feeling? I felt like I just ruined my relationship with my parents. Then after about a half hour of wallowing in self frustration and regret, my parents and usually before they could say anything, I would jump right in, tears streaming down my face and apologize profusely. I kind of knew. Uh, and being good parents, they would always accept my apology and forgive me. So before I tell you any more about eight-year-old Taylor, let's read. Um, and this is such a remarkable passage of scripture. Uh, I'm going to do something different. Let's actually all read this together out loud. Just the first two verses. I think we can do it. Uh, so we're in Romans chapter 8, verse 1 and 2. Uh, if you're looking for it, it's past Acts. Okay, Revelation, you've gone a bit too far. Okay. All right, here we go. One, two, three. Therefore, there is now no obligation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit is life. Set you free of the law of sin and death. In the world of God. How does it make you feel that you have been set free? This is a great verse to remind. Uh, it's great to just have to remind yourself on a regular basis. If you, as you probably noticed, um, Paul uses the word law a lot in the book of Romans. Uh, and it may behoove you to know that not every time uh, Paul says law, he's referring to the same thing. For example, here, when he refers to the law of the Spirit, he's talking about the holy equation, sinful human plus Holy Spirit in Jesus equals eternal life of God. Whereas, when he mentions the law of sin and death, Paul's talking about sin and its effect on eternal life, which ultimately is death. And in the next verse, Paul references the Old Testament law. So let's read verses 3 and 4. This time, I'll just read it. So verses 3 and 4 say, For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us. We do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And at this point, you may be thinking, like I was the first time reading this verse. <laughs> okay, this is an okay response. It kind of is. But this isn't a chemistry textbook. You can't just read something, say what, and then move on like nothing happened. <laughs> let's, let's break it down a little bit, right? So for what the law was powerless to do, save us from sin, because it was impossible to follow, to rebel, to rebel, is literally everything it said. Uh, so this is a good thing to know. The law was never able to save a person. Only to point out the same thing. Uh, to condemn one sin. I provided ways to purify myself, but it offered no permanent mode of being made perfectly okay. <clears throat> and Meredith told us about this a few weeks ago, um, that the law isn't bad. In fact, it's <coughs> The problem is that we aren't. Uh, so holding on to a standard of perfection is just foolish. And that's why Jesus fulfilled the law by being the only perfect person in history Never follow the perfect law perfectly. So now what happens to the law? 
It's still a good thing, right? but its role is just drastically changed. And instead of seeking to escape condemnation from the law by following it, we seek to follow the law because we have been made righteous in Christ. Let me say that again. The law no longer tells us how to escape hell. Instead, we follow the law as a moral and ethical guide, as ones who have been made righteous by Christ. Yoki Anderson says this really well in his book, The of the As believers, we are not trying to become saints, rather, we are saints who are becoming like Christ. You see the difference here? The same goes for your own personal lives. By telling yourself, Okay, if I don't go to every single Kai Alphine core meeting, if I don't read my Bible every single day, instead we say, Jesus saved me. I want to worship him and serve my friends and family by going to Kai Alphine core. I want to get to know him more, uh, more about him by reading his book. Let me ask you something. Is Jesus worthy of your discipline? Is he worthy of you growing in your ability to read about him every day? And is he worthy of you being disciplined enough to serve your core mates by coming to core every week even when you don't feel like it? So getting back to our, our salvation, instead of coming from the law, it now comes from God himself. And he did this by sending Jesus, God, as a person, to be a sin offering. And a sin offering uh, was a, a sacrifice made to God to cleanse people from their sin. And this is what, Jesus, what God did with Jesus. He condemned sin in the flesh so that we no longer have been in bondage to sin, but in the Let's keep reading. Um, picking up in verse 5. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. Okay, so did you notice that having your mind set on something doesn't mean... Yeah, I thought about that one time. Having your mind set on something implies continuous action. Like you set the cruise control in your car to 70 miles an hour when you're on I-90. Maybe that was something else. But you, know, you set it there so you don't go any faster or slower. And there it stays. Or like uh, when, I, when I chose to make Cassidy my wife, I set my interest on I would set my mind on her best interest. So now whenever I make a decision, I have to think, how would this affect Cassidy, not just me? And this is what it means that to have our minds set on what the Spirit desires. We live for God all the time, so that our minds start reshaping itself and ditching all the sinful thoughts. And by the way, this won't happen in So continuing, the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. That's nice. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. <clears throat> Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot be told for seeing that I can't believe God and I'm giving that Doesn't God want me to be happy? I think the more important question is, doesn't God want me to live? Friends, if your mind is being controlled by fleshly thoughts and desires, it's not just that you're not pleasing God, it's just leading a life that is headed for your own destruction. 
continues by saying, You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is going to die because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of His Spirit who lives in you. And that is what I'm talking about. Therefore, Brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Okay, so this kind of makes sense, yeah. Paul says we have an obligation, but, just to be clear, uh, the obligation is not to the flesh. I mean, the only thing that the flesh ever gave us was pain the obligation Paul is speaking is for the one who is worshipped in prayer. Paul is urging his fellow believers in Rome, and he's urging us today, we owe a debt of our lives to God. <coughs> As those who have been bought, we have an obligation to live in accordance with the Spirit. We have an obligation to live with minds that are governed by the Spirit of God. And we have an obligation to him who bought us while we were slaves to sins and set us free so we could live righteous lives. This may or may not, but definitely does mean that we are going to have to do some cleaning of our dirty lives. And yeah, this is never fun because it means that I have to give up something I'm used to depending on. But as N.T. Wright puts it, a Christian life that does not involve putting to death that which drags us down into the world of the flesh not worthy of the name. In other words, being a Christian means that you get rid of the things that are not making you more like Jesus. Let's continue. Uh, Starting in verse 14. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought by your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God, and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. Okay, so you know how I said uh, that this was a chapter of Romans where Paul was here we are. So far, Paul has told us that we no longer stand condemned if we are in Christ Jesus. He's told us that we live our lives in accordance with the very spirit of the living God, which means that we are truly living. And Paul reminds us that we owe no debt to our sinful desires, aka we don't live like our Christian, like our, our friends who aren't following Jesus. We don't participate in those sinful habits because we don't owe anything to that painful lifestyle. Now, in my opinion, this is where Paul really ranks it up. This is the symphony, this is where the symphony of Romans comes to its kind of climax. Here, Paul says, we have been adopted to sonship. Later on in Romans, he writes that we've been grafted in, and Jesus said that we're like born again, rebirthed into a new family. 
This time our father is not Satan, but our father is God. And if this is the first time that you've heard this, sweet. Now you know that your dad is literally the most powerful and wonderful thing in existence. Most of us probably have heard this before. In fact, we sing a song in Kyle that even states, I'm no longer a slave to fear, I'm a child of God. But I wonder sometimes if we overlook the implications of being a child of God. It's certainly reassuring to know. And it feels good to have such a good father. But what does this actually mean for our lives? Being God's children, we bear his image to the world. And by bearing his image, we transform the world. The inheritance, God gave Christ. He has now given us the world. God and the entire world is our inheritance. God uses us, his children, to bring life and light where there is death and darkness. So if you ever caught yourself thinking you're saying, and I really know, I know that person needs Jesus in their life, but I just can't stand them. So I don't think I'm going to even try and tell them about Jesus. Besides, if it's in God's will, why does it happen in some other way? Okay, quick sidetracking. Does anyone watch The Office? I love The Office. And there's this one really comical moment uh, in an episode of where the favorite company, Thunder Mifflin, is in a bit of a crisis with a bunch of their clients. And so Michael Scott, the office manager, the kind of the bumbling office manager, calls a conference room meeting that everyone can get together and figure out uh, and figure out how to solve this problem with all their clients. And at one point, he points to Pam, who's taking notes, and he said, we really got to get ahead of this one. Uh, we got to get ahead of the papers on this one. I want to use this as the headline. Scranton Paper Company apologizes. Dunder, Dunder Mifflin apologizes to value client. Some companies still know how business is done. To which Jim responds, more like a horrible. So here's the headline Paul is holding up right now. Fellow children of God, you are the way God transforms this world. He said so when he said, go make disciples of every ethnic group, Central Washington University classroom and residence hall. You, Jesus, and the Spirit. Friend, this is how God has chosen to do it. I know you're thinking, Taylor, are you sure about this? Did God really just decide to hand over all the authority on earth? I mean, he didn't exactly hand it over, but he has entrusted it to us. Um, and you don't have to click here um, right now, but I, I'm going to put up some references um, from the Old Testament. I'm with Genesis 1, 27 through 28 says, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And then in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, it says, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and 
you'll be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And then, in the last one, in Exodus 32, verse 13, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I have promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. The earth will be their inheritance. It seems like this is what God planned from the beginning. Like he chose us, Homo sapiens. Who is us? So God, if God commanded to keep this, this of his people before he sent Jesus, why does it work even more so now? We're the ones who have been set free from the destructive patterns of sin. Our lives are blessed, and we are at peace with God in Christ Jesus. There's one final thing that I mentioned to this and that is that we are heirs of God and co heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his suffering, in order that we may also share in I think this is worth, this is something worth wrestling with. <clears throat> it's something that we don't consider very carefully and overlook and dismiss it. That as children of God, we share in the suffering of Christ. And this is scary to us because we don't want to suffer. We don't want to have enemies. But let me ask you this Is your main goal in life? I'm not saying that this is bad. It's a bad goal. I think it's a great goal. Please keep making friends. But what happens if it becomes their top priority? What if making friends with Jesus is top priority in life? It wouldn't really align with a lot of what he said and did. Like, picture Jesus saying to himself, okay. Really want people to like me so I can be friends with everybody. I'm gonna make this happen. Oh, I know. I'll tell them, hey everyone, I know you think everything's gonna turn out great for you as long as you're a good person. But in reality, I'm literally the only way you're ever gonna see God. In fact, you can't do anything without me. Oh, and by the way, if you don't follow me, you've sworn allegiance to Satan. And you're going to hell. That's not a great friend making technique. You know? I mean, I don't, so I just, I don't, Jesus' first interest wasn't in making friends with people on this earth, rather speaking the truth in love so that God would be made known in all, to all humanity. And I would not suggest that you go around telling people they went to hell. Please don't do that. I mean, we're bringing some good news, not anything about it. But if we ever find ourselves staying quiet when Jesus is being talked down, do we ever allow our friends to continue in their self-destructive patterns just because we don't want to offend them? Friends, allegiance with Christ is to make enemies with the world. But consider the hopefulness of Paul's statement. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. There may be a lot you can think about tonight. Um, so I want to ask a few questions to conclude tonight's message <clears throat> and worship team tonight. But first I want to make sure one something clear. 
never thought, well, today I really messed up. And I, I wonder if God still thinks of me. I wonder if he still loves me or even thinks of me as his child anymore. So remember how I told you about eight-year-old Taylor, um, and how after I apologized to my parents, they would always forgive me and tell me he still loved me. Not only that, it would also remind me that I was their son, and there was nothing I could do that would ever change that. The interesting thing here is what they were saying was quite literal. Um, having given birth to me, my mom could at no point ever stop being my mom. And my father's, you know, my father's blood flows through my veins. Even while I was disobeying them and rebelling against them, I was their son in their family. And this is how it works with God. We are his adopted children, and nothing can change that. No matter how we disobey God, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and not forgive us our sins. And he is still our father. We're still in the family. Here's what I want to ask you to think about tonight. First off, I want to say for anyone here who hasn't decided to follow Jesus and become a child of God, He is offering to adopt you tonight. There is a cost, and it's a significant one, but it's worth it. And you have the chance to live for something eternal. And for those who call themselves Christians, I want to ask how does tonight's message change the way you view yourself on Central's campus? Or your life this summer away from school? How does this change the way you prepare for your life beyond central? What in your life right now is not fitting for a child of God? And what specifically would you do with your life right now? Thank you for our heritage.